Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and I'm here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with Spike's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello, hello. And joining us down the line from London is Brendan O'Neill, editor of Spiked and host of the new monthly podcast, The Brendan O'Neill Show. Hello. This week, we discuss the Labour Party's democracy problem. Professor of political science, Sherry Berman, explains how identity politics undermines democracy. And finally, we talk about the billboards removed for defining the word woman as adult human female. Labour will vote against the Chequers plan or whatever is left of it and oppose leaving the EU with no deal. We'll keep the option of a people's vote on the table and that will be a referendum on the deal itself, obviously. We must have other options. Our options must include campaigning for a public vote and nobody is ruling out Remain as an option. This week, the Labour Party had their annual conference in Liverpool. Many Labour members were excited by the prospect of greater democratic control over selecting their constituency MPs. But on the big democratic question of our time, there is much less enthusiasm. The vast majority of members voted to keep open the option of a second EU referendum. Labour's Brexit secretary, Keir Starmer, refused to rule out having Remain on the ballot to rapturous applause. Brendan, can you tell us your thoughts on this contradiction? I think it's fascinating, the Labour Party conference, because it's given us a really clear snapshot of what the Labour Party is now, which is this predominantly youthful, very bourgeois, anti-Brexit and essentially anti-working class organisation. And I think that the really striking thing about Corbyn's Labour Party is that they posture against the old Tony Blair Labour Party. You know, they would define themselves against Blairism uh, all day long. But they share something incredibly important in common with the Blairites, which is this is the exact same phenomenon whereby a pretty aloof, middle-class, professionalised or academic section of society has taken over a party that used to be or was ostensibly for working class people. Uh, that's exactly what the Blairites did in the mid-1990s, and now that's exactly what Corbynistas have done today. And you could really see that at the conference. You could see how bourgeois this party has become, how distant it has become from its traditional working class grassroots support base through the issue of Brexit, through the fact that a pre-conference poll suggests that 86% of Labour members want a second referendum. As you say, Keir Starmer's promise that Remain could still be an option on a future referendum got rapturous applause from the audience, because this is an audience of pretty much, you know, metropolitan, middle-class, woke Remainers. Um, so we had a really interesting snapshot of a party that is just completely cut adrift from its traditional supporters and has, mo has moved in a completely new direction. And I think that's the story of the Labour Party conference, even though it's definitely not the story that the Labour Party itself would like to tell. No, I think Brendan's absolutely right. And what's really fascinating, I think, about Labour Party conferences, as Brendan says, the Labour Party has been drifting away from its traditional heartland, from its traditional working class constituencies for decades. You know, it's something which has been tumbling for 20 or 30 years. What's been fascinating is that Corbyn has sped up that process. So when he first came in, there was a lot of this excitement that he was kind of putting things back on this kind of old Labour pro-worker footing but it was under his leadership that at the 2017 election social class ceased to be a predictor of how people voted in that 
election. And that is absolutely fascinating. But I think what's interesting, and I think what the Brexit issue in particular really highlights, given the fact that over 60% of people in of working class people in Britain voted leave, is that it feels like not only is Labour no longer the party of the working class, they kind of don't care about that fact. They seem to embrace it. You saw, I think it was really perfectly summed up by the point in which Keir Starmer made this point in his speech about no one is saying that Remain is off the table and then the cameras just panned out from a very angry looking Dennis Skinner um, as everyone else around him stood up and you know erupted in rapturous applause something made even more poetic by the fact there was two empty seats next to him and that moment I think just really summed up the fact that not only has um, Labour become a, a thoroughly bourgeois party as it has been over decades and decades but at this point they kind of don't care they realize who their constituency is it is students it is middle class people it is kind of as brendan was saying kind of woke professionals and they're just not really trying to hide it anymore and i think that's really what this um betrayal frankly on the question of a second referendum represents there were two kind of uh, moments that summed it up for me, I, th- this transformation from the politics of representing working class people to the politics of woke. And there was a you know, young delegate from the North East who suggested that the EU was anti-worker, that the Brexit vote needed to be respected in order to hold on to um, voters in, in his area. And he was met with boos and jeers, whereas someone else who basically suggested that the chair should stop using gender specific <laughs> identifiers so should stop saying the woman over there please or the man yeah. over there and that was met with applause and that for me really summed up the transformation of the kind of politics that labor pursues i think labor is arguably now the most elitist party in britain you can see that in its social makeup it is increasingly middle class in terms of its membership you can see that in the kinds of political approaches it takes in its allergy towards Brexit and in its adoption of these incredibly eccentric woke outlooks, which they have no idea how alien and bizarre they sound to most ordinary people. Uh, And on the issue of the second referendum, as suggested by the 86% of members who want one, it's even more out of touch than other sections of the political and cultural elite. So uh, this is the most elitist party. And so the great irony of its slogan, you know, for the many, not the few, is that the party itself completely turns that on its head. This is a party for the few, which is isolating and in some cases physically booing its uh, traditional members from the Midlands and the North and other areas and Wales where, um, you know, support for Brexit is very strong among working class traditional Labour voters. I would go so far as to say that Labour is now objectively anti-working class uh, because, firstly, in terms of the policy it adopts, it it, it embraces very paternalistic policies in terms of cracking down on gambling and junk food adverts and all these other very middle-class moralistic measures to correct the plebs. You can see it also in terms of their um, inability to come up with any serious structural economic vision that might provide people with gainful employment. And I think um, Jeremy Corbyn's plan to coat the country in in wind farms and wind turbines, you know, as if the future of the country is some kind of wind revolution is completely bizarre and is not going to have any real impact on joblessness. And of course, you can see it in the fact that the great cry for democratic power that was made in this country two years ago fills the Labour Party with dread. 
because they don't want ordinary people to have that kind of power. They don't want ordinary people to have that kind of influence because fundamentally they don't trust ordinary people, as is, can be seen in the way in which they are very anti-tabloid newspaper and Jeremy Corbyn got possibly his loudest cheer when he promised that they would do something about the press. You can see in all their various policies, what we have here is a very aloof strata of society that actually looks down its nose at ordinary people. So we're, we're coming really to a new era in which Labour is not only failing to represent the working classes, but is actually against working class interests. The, the sooner working class people stop voting for Labour, the better off politically this country will be. I think this week at the Labour Party conference, we've really just seen the kind of lie of Corbynism unfold before our very eyes. Because when Corbyn came in, the idea was that he was going to do two things. The first one was to put Labour back on this old Labour pro-worker footing, that he was going to reconnect with working class people, reconnect with the core Labour mission. As we've already talked about, that hasn't panned out too well. The second thing was that he was different that he was a man of principle, that unlike the Blairite spinners and these kind of principle-like technocrats, he was about what he said he was about, that he was a man who stuck to his guns. And the fact that we've seen this week, Jeremy Corbyn not only allow some of his surrogates, but explicitly say himself that a second referendum with Remain on the ticket is on the table, a man who has advocated Brexit his entire political life, I think just explodes the idea that he is really a man of principle in any respect. You're listening to The Spike Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, why not give us a rating and a review? It really helps new people find the show. Up next, identity politics. Identity politics is everywhere today. Appeals to group identities dominate election campaigns. Although identity politics has come to be associated with the new woke left, the political scientist Sherry Berman argues that it's the right who benefits most from this approach. Not only that, Identity politics is undermining democracy itself, she argues. I caught up with Sherry Berman at Columbia University in New York. Sherry, welcome to the show. Welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm happy to be here. First off, Steve Bannon famously said that he couldn't get enough of the left's race identity politics. What did he mean by this? Well, presumably what he meant was that the more that the left talked about race... Um, the more that his particular base would be activated. Um, So the more mobilized and um, involved he could get the people who he thought were going to be voting for Trump and for the Republican Party. And he also presumably believed that it would help to divide Democrats because they have a much more diverse coalition than he did. So it would both help him mobilize his voters and potentially divide Democratic voters. So, for instance, he felt that a lot of emphasis on cultural issues and identity issues, talking about the specific problems of specific groups or the specific grievances of specific groups as opposed to problems that bridge these divides, mostly economic problems, would again sort of cause some people to be more activated and more engaged than others. So he loved it when Democrats made numerous appeals to a variety of different groups because he hoped that some of those would cancel out and also piss off enough of his supporters to get them, you know, to the polls, um, participating in politics in other ways and things like that. Can you kind of tell me why identity politics is particularly destructive for the left 
over the past generation, the Republican Party has become a fairly homogenous party. It is dominated very heavily by white voters who are not in major metropolitan areas, who tend to be more culturally or socially conservative, who are often quite religious and are, in their political views, quite sort of conservative. And so that's a relatively homogenous group, and it's a much larger percentage of the Democrat, of the Republican, excuse me, party than any one group is of the Democratic Party. So it's much easier for him to to craft a single appeal that, again, will get them, he believes, to the polls and active than it is for Democrats who have a much larger variety of groups with some overlapping interests, but some interests that they do not share. Do we also misunderstand political developments if we see everything through the lens of identity politics? I mean, to give an example, Trump's election is widely seen as the product of a white lash or, you know, as a product of unreconstructed racism. I mean, is, is that a problem when we explain politics through that lens? Because, for instance, a lot of um, Trump voters will have voted for Obama twice in a row. Is it, is it even true to say that America is becoming more racist or more racist than ever? On some level, um, there has clearly been a backlash since um, 2016. So the very fact that Trump was elected and has then used these coded and often not so coded appeals to mobilize his voters has, in fact, I believe, increased not only divisions within American society, but the prevalence or the... um, acceptability of certain kinds of views. He's activated, I think, certain kinds of prejudices and certain kinds of biases. Um, However, if you look at the numbers overall, over the long term in particular, levels of racism in American society have gone down really dramatically. And so elites, and in particular president, who obviously has a huge platform, really has the ability to shape the conversation, again, in what's seen as legitimate and not, and what people are activated and motivated by. But the long-term secular trends were actually going in the right direction, not quickly enough, um, certainly not extensively enough, but definitely in the right direction. And I think what we've seen since 2016 is an attempt to kind of, again, play off a lot of fears that had been diminishing or submerged and really, again, make them once again a kind of mobilizing force in politics. Is there a sense that when people line up in terms of identity along partisan lines, that actually in many ways that can obscure the kind of real divisions and also the real agreements that people have uh, politically? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, one thing that's happened in the United States over the past generation is you've seen this incredible sorting process. As I mentioned earlier, what's happened is the Republican Party in particular has gotten more homogenous over time in a whole variety of ways. And so you have fewer, first of all, cross-cutting cleavages, right? So in a previous era, for instance, you would have had Southern conservatives and Northern liberals in the Democratic Party. You would have had a Republican Party that had some conservatives, but some Northerners who were Republicans, but were much more liberal on both economic and to some degree social issues. And now that's much less the case. And that's very dangerous because it makes compromise more difficult. It makes it much easier to see your opponent as very distinct from yourself and much more threatening. And it becomes, again, much more difficult to play the democratic game because there's many fewer points of overlap. There's many fewer opportunities for compromise. And there's much greater fear and emotion in politics as opposed to kind of, again, less emotional, somewhat more rational and informed um, decision making and um, political interactions. Is there also a sense that it undermines social solidarity in some way? 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The combination of both the diminishment of cross-cutting cleavages and how that then has encouraged politicians to sow these divisions, make them even deeper, to play off them. In um, in political science, we used to call this in developing countries ethnic outbidding, right? So politicians would mobilize voters on the basis of identities that they surely had, but were not necessarily the most salient part of their public lives about how they think thought about politics, but it's a cheap and easy way to kind of get voters, to mobilize them on these identities, in particular to mobilize them around emotional appeals and fear-based appeals. Fear, fear is an extremely powerful motivator, and it tends to override a lot of other things. So again, I think that what's happened is some of these divisions and biases that were certainly there, but again, were not at the forefront of American politics, became so after the Obama era, and in particular, again, with um, with the rise of the Trump presidency. So do we need to return to a kind of more universal politics? Well, I mean, it would be nice if we could think of ourselves as Americans as opposed to Democrats and Republicans or African-Americans and white Americans or minorities and minorities. I mean, clearly for a country to function well, we have to feel like we're sort of in this together and everybody has to feel like the rules of the game are not biased against them. It's very hard for democracy to work if every time you have an election, if every time you have a political choice, you think that the stakes are so high that you can't afford to lose. If you think that compromise is an anathema, if you think that the person on the other side of the aisle is not just someone who differs from you on his or her policy choices, but again, in her entire perspective on the world, um, you know, priorities and values, then democracy becomes impossible. So on some level, for democracy to work, we do need to have some, not just cross-cutting cleavages, but some sense of ourselves as Americans who have a commitment to certain shared values and institutions and procedures for our democracy to be able to function well at all. Cherie, thank you so much for joining us on the Spike podcast. It's been my pleasure. You're listening to the Spike podcast. Spiked has no paywalls and no subscriptions. It's contributions from listeners and readers like you that keeps us fighting for freedom and democracy. If you'd like to support Spiked, just go to spiked-online.com and hit the donate button. This week, a feminist blogger put up a billboard in Liverpool which said, Woman. Noun. Adult human female. This definition of a woman sparked a complaint from an activist who accused the billboard company of being complicit in hate speech. Within hours, the billboard was removed. This is only the latest example of critical discussion around the trans issue being silenced. Is it now impossible to say that a woman is an adult female? Yes, I think it is impossible, uh, or at least incredibly difficult. I think this is a really interesting example of trans censorship and trans authoritarianism. Uh, We've seen a lot of that over the past couple of years, but this is a very interesting example because what we have here is an illiberal authoritarian reaction to simply the dictionary definition of what a woman is. So you now cannot say in public uh, uh, what a woman is. You cannot define a woman without upsetting this rather eccentric campaign group and its various so-called allies. And I think what it really points to is how um, Orwellian the trans outlook has become, because not only are they trying to say that a man can become a woman or a woman can become a man and all these things that many people consider to be very questionable claims, but they also want to uh, rewrite language itself, rewrite words themselves and really dig down and change 
the way in which we speak and the way in which we understand each other. And I think the fact that they are trying to erase the dictionary definition of womanhood from the public sphere is a really good example of that. I think there's also a very powerfully misogynistic streak in this because the guy who complained about this poster was a man. Um, a lot of trans activists are men who claim to be women or who are in the process of becoming trans women. And these men, these born men, are constantly shouting down actual women and preventing them from speaking in public or from having public meetings. That strikes me as illiberal and misogynistic. And I'm amazed that anyone who considers themselves progressive supports this increasingly strange and worrying movement. The thing about the transgender movement, it, it's making claims and assertions which effectively upend, for most people, common sense, thousands of years of biological truth in many respects. It's really trying to do some pretty radical things, shall we say. The fact that it can brook no dissent, it seems, I think speaks to the fact that um, how, in many respects, kind of insecure it is as, a, as an identity and as a movement. And these stories are coming kind of, you know, a ten a penny now. I mean, this week there was also the story that two volunteers for the Girl Guides have been expelled um, given after they criticised a new policy of the Girl Guides to admit um, trans women leaders and members. Um, they just criticised it on Facebook and they were instantly kicked out. It was only a few weeks ago, of course, that um, the Merseyside police began investigations into this campaign group that were putting out stickers that said women do not have penises again this is a statement which fundamentally is for the vast majority of people in britain clear biological commonsensical fact and what's strange to me is not necessarily just the intolerance of trans campaigners small and unrepresentative though i'm sure they are it's why so many institutions, whether it's the Girl Guides, whether it's the British government, whether it's polite society in general, feel the need to uncritically roll over in front of these claims. That seems to me to be the, the strangest and the kind of most core problem at the heart of this. And, I, and I'd add to those lists of institutions in support, in particular, of, say, the Gender Recognition Act. It's the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, the, even the Church of England have come out yeah. in, in favour mm. of this, this new law to allow people to self-identify um, as whatever gender they please. And any questioning of that is, as you say, completely shut down. The bar for what is considered transphobia is so low that people now accuse Mumsnet of being a hotbed of trans... Oh, but they trans- are. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's many wrong-uns on, on that forum. but Not for that, though. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> and so, yeah, even, even, as you say, commonsensical phrases, notions that people have you know, believed all their lives, and I'd imagine most trans activists believed until about five years ago, are now considered beyond the pale, disgusting and unutterable. Yeah, the speed with which all this has happened and the thoroughness with which it's all happened really tells us that something strange is going on. This is not a normal transformation in his view of the world. I think Tom's absolutely right. They just cave in every time a trans activist demands some change or demands a change in their constitution or their wording or the language that they use. You know, it really makes me laugh when trans activists compare themselves to the gay rights movement of the 1960s and 70s and 80s. There's no comparison whatsoever. Firstly, um, the gay rights movement did not have the support of the established church. It was not cheered by the Conservative Party. It wasn't <laughs> celebrated by the mainstream media. Uh, the gay rights movement had to fight incredibly hard 
for uh, basic equal rights for gay people against, uh, you know, in a very difficult climate. What's striking about the trans movement is just how quickly it's become this really conformist outlook celebrated by the establishment that you question at your peril. Also, there's just the element of, you know, cultural appropriation, for want of a better word. We, we now have this kind of modern woke left, which is obsessed with the problem of cultural appropriation. And yet it doesn't bat an eyelid that you have born men who want to culturally appropriate the girl guides, uh, the top shop changing rooms, the, the female swimming lakes on Hampstead Heath. It, it, it strikes me that we are living through one of the biggest exercises in cultural appropriation of recent times, and everyone's applauding. It, it, it's a strange political climate that deserves a lot more interrogation than it's getting. And I think the point Brendan makes about the differences between previous liberation movements is actually really important. Because again, if you think about the gay rights movement, so much of that was about getting people off of their backs. It was about getting the state out of the bedroom. It was about saying, leave us alone to be who we are. There's something about the trans movement, such as it is, is that it demands actually far more than that. It demands recognition. It demands society be kind of reshaped around um, its, uh, the identity of the people within it. Um, and in some respects, it's demanding complete acquiescence to its ideology as well. And I think that there is something about this which is fundamentally different. And again, I think we always have to go back to the point in which so much of this debate is had in the absence of actual trans people themselves. Um, so much of this debate is about um, girl guides equality policies in, in the off chance that someone transgender might want to enter on some point. And again, I just can't quite work out why it is that this has become such a focus. And I, it, I keep going back to what Camille Pallia said about this, which is, you know, we'll be talking about gender pronouns when ISIS come and take over the world. It just feels like there's so much fussing and so much obsession over something which is a specifically very small community who increasingly are being spoken about rather than speaking for themselves. You've been listening to the Spike Podcast. If you enjoy the show, don't forget to subscribe and maybe even give us a rating and a review. And of course, for your daily dose of Spiked, just go to spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.